Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. While I was in seminary at Baylor, uh, one of my jobs was to be a chaplain. I was a chaplain for one of the men's dormitory for two years. So while all my friends from college were out there starting their career and making good money and buying their first house, I was living in a dorm with 550 freshman guys in Waco, Texas, of all places. Now, one of my favorite experiences as a chaplain of that dorm was the first day when kids would move in. These uh, young freshman men would move in with their parents and their mothers like their last gasp of maternal love are so excited about making that dorm look just like they wanted it. The guy has no clue what it's going to look like, but the mother's taking care of that. I'd meet the parents and I would make a mental snapshot of what that freshman looked like because in a matter of few weeks, there's a good chance that he would go through a radical transformation. In a pursuit of actually finding himself, a lot of people, a lot of freshmen would look for their group, their people, their tribe. And once they would find it, they would be so desperate for that. Once they find whoever embraced them, they would transform and embody whatever, whatever, they, whatever they looked like. So for instance, I remember this one, one kid in particular who's the epitome of a prep. Abercrombie and Fitch shirt, uh, nice khakis, way too much hair product. And then, about a week into school, he joined a fraternity. And in a matter of a couple weeks, he had gone full roper. Wrangler pants, Carhartt jacket, even though it was warm, uh, in that Copenhagen ring forming in the back pocket. See, he found his new tribe, and his clothes represented this new identity. Finding one's community is incredibly important. It's a universal longing that we all have. We all want to find our people. We all want to find our tribe. And it's just natural. And though it might not be as obvious as going full roper, when we find our people, we usually adapt our persona. We take whatever coverings or whatever banner that that group has and we wrap ourselves up with it. We absorb their values and positions because it's incredibly comforting knowing that we found a group of people who believe what we believe act like the way we act, share our values, and just like an 18-year-old trying to find their way, that sense of solidarity is incredibly powerful for us all. But there's another side of tribalism. Tribes are not only powerful in giving that sense of solidarity and finding who's with us, but they are also powerful in forming who is against us. Who is the other? Who's the one that's outside this circle? And I remember as I heard in song that nothing unifies like a common enemy. So much ink has been spilt detailing how divided our country is, how our culture and our society is marked by polarization and antagonism. And that can feel quite exceptional. But tension like this is nothing new. There's, this moment is actually similar to the moment that Jesus stepped into. Jesus came into a time and a culture where there was great division. There was ethnic division. There was racial um, antagonism. There was great religious debate going on. There were some people who were wanting to be friendly with the Roman Empire while other people were planning a military uprising. So what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus walked 
in and out of different debates, sometimes aligning with one side and then, and then challenging it in the next second. He didn't fall prey to the either-or questions of the day. Jesus was following a different compass, and that compass not only challenged the debates and the antagonism, but was, was teaching the people that they could find a different way. Even in, sometimes when people would give Jesus two different options, Jesus would say that there's actually a third option. There might be a third way. And because Jesus didn't ultimately align with a certain group or a certain debate, he didn't cover himself with the banner of a certain position, everyone turned on him. I mean, eventually, because Jesus was living a different way, following a different compass, they felt like he was a threat, and that eventually led to hatred and violence. It makes me wonder how Jesus would navigate our day, how Jesus would uh, navigate the debates that are just surrounding us in our culture, the ones that are draining and sucking all of our attention and our emotion. I wonder how Jesus would speak to the different positions that we're entrenched to. And furthermore, I wonder how we would respond when we realize that Jesus might not always be on our side. I stumbled on a uh, obscure and a powerful story tucked away in Joshua chapter 5 this past week. Joshua took over leadership from Moses who had led uh, the Hebrew nation out of slavery and in through the wilderness. And, and now Joshua takes on the mantle of leadership. He's now entering the promised land right on the edge. And he's about to attack Jericho, that first battle where they would actually try to seize the promised land. And just before that battle, a bizarre moment took place. This is in Joshua 5, starting in verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he responded. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. If there's any time that we would expect God to take a side, wouldn't it be this moment? After what God did, God liberated the people in Egypt, led them through the wilderness, and was telling them to take heart, take courage, I'm going to deliver you into the, your promised land. Wouldn't you think that this would be the moment that, that God would say, of course I'm on your side. What do you think I've been doing? But when this messenger of the Lord is given this option from Joshua, are you with us or with them? The answer was neither. I'm not with you. I'm not with them. It seems as if God will not be co-opted into our agendas. God will not be a plaything in our tribalisms of us versus them. God does not care to be the endorsement on our particular banners of our division. We might be on the edge of our own battles of this day, and we might be wanting to ask God, Hey God, are you with us or are you with them? Are you ready to hear God say, Neither. I'm not a part of your plan. I'm not a part of your tribe. I'm not getting on with your agenda. The question is instead, are you with me? Because when you're with me, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. It feels like the same question that Joshua posed this angel. Our society is coming to us and posing to each of us. Which side are you on? Whose banner are you willing to carry? 
Neutrality is not an option. Pick a side. This is why the binary options that we have in our culture of antagonism so often fail us. Why? Our greatest loyalty is not to an agenda, a tribe, or a side, or a position. It's to Jesus and his kingdom. As pastor and theologian David Fitch, who spoke to us a couple months ago, what he said to us, he implored us to to not fall prey to the enemy-making machine that's humming underneath the surface of our lives, of our society, and sadly underneath our church as well. We need to be observant of the antagonisms that we are getting trapped in. And if we ever discover that we do have an enemy, an other, we need to remember that Jesus asked us to especially love them, our enemies. So what are we called to do in this moment? When we can so so easily be clothed by the agendas of our day, by the banners of our particular camp. Well, what do we do? Well, we allow Christ to clothe us differently. Paul wrote to a very diverse church 2,000 years ago, and we have this letter in Colossians where he makes this appeal. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. In the midst of division and strife and judgment, we allow Christ to clothe us differently. We shake off the wrappings of our positions and of our camps, and we we allow Christ to, to clothe us with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. We're called to give and receive forgiveness. That actually means that we confess to each other. And above everything else, what are we called to put on? We're called to put on love which somehow beautifully and mysteriously holds it all together. Those are the wrappings of Jesus's tribe, his people, his followers. Isn't it so obvious that one of the greatest ways that the church can bear witness to who Jesus is, is to take off all the wrappings that are so prevalent in our society and put on humility, compassion, an ability to forgive and ask for forgiveness, to put on gentleness and patience and kindness. That what what a great thing for Christians to be known for, not only for what we're doing in the world, but like let's begin with each other. Let's start within the church because this is pointing us to a different kind of unity. I was struggling with this and I actually stumbled on something that I thought was incredibly helpful. A.J. Sherrill is a pastor and an author who I had the privilege to spend time with this past summer. We spent a week together, and, and so along that week, he asked me about you. He said, Mark, will you describe your church? What is it like? And I was talking about, about you and who the vine is, and, and then I said, you know, one of the things that makes us unique is that we have, like, this diversity of church background. Like, we're not, we're not like this coming from the same denomination. We don't have the same theological pinnings and doctrines. Like we're kind of all over the map. And to be honest, sometimes it feels like an incredible blessing and a gift. And other times it feels like a burden. It feels like a challenge. What does it mean to actually have a sense of unity when we are all over the map in our own beliefs and convictions? 
And our conversation spun into a, a wonderful direction where he shared a thought. He, and thought was, when we think of unity, we usually think of the positions that we take. So for instance, check out this line. So this line is a line that's just, just graphing where people's positions are. And, you know, so from liberal to conservative is one way to think about it. And, you know, you could probably place yourself, where do you think you fall along the spectrum? And, you know, you think about a certain issue that's really important to you. You can probably plot it on this line of where, where do you stand on that? Or maybe even that family member or that friend, there, there's been tension because you're arguing, where are they in this? That news source that you listen to? Or the news source that you hate <laughs> you know that experience like it's so tempting to put people like put them on a box that mental box somewhere along this line you know that experience where you thought someone was of the same mindset and then they say something or do something you're like oh well, I got to move them now now boom they're over there or boom they're over there well that changes our relationship I mean that's happened over and over again in these last several months now what happens is we have a tendency to gravitate to people who share the same position that we do. Why? It's comforting to find those people. You're no longer alone. You can share the same vocabulary, reinforce the same beliefs, you, you show up for the same issues, you can be angry about the same things. But then slowly that people group becomes a tribe, it becomes our sense of community. We have a sense of unity not only for who we are, but who we're against. But sometimes even though within that same group, we can even splinter off into smaller camps of sameness. And to make matters worse in the modern age is we have algorithms on our devices and our social media that tracks where we are on this spectrum and either just reinforces that position or they try to, to polarize us even more. Now you can apply this to our, politi our political climate that we have right now, or you could apply this to um, uh, the racial tension, this racial moment we have. Uh, you know, can, where, where, where are you here? And churches uh, can divorce over being uh, in different positions. You know, today I'm thinking specifically on the, on the topic of human sexuality. So are you affirming or are you traditional? You know, this positional culture uh, is incredibly powerful at forming tribalism and divorcing the church, causing schisms in relationship. A.J. Sherrill, in an article following up on this, he wrote this. The problem today is not that we have positions. The problem is that the positional axis is the dominant, even exclusive way we determine whether or not we can have unity with someone. In that type of unity, built upon positional sameness can subtly fuel a toxic culture of antagonism and enemy making where we lob grenades at tribes further right or further left than us. But I wonder if Jesus might want to show us that there is a different kind of unity. Rather than horizontal unity built on positions, I wonder if there can be a unity of posture. You'll notice on the vertical axis on the top, is a posture that leads towards curiosity, graciousness, empathy, compassion. And at the bottom end is a posture that points towards being judgmental, closed-minded, dehumanizing, and enemy-making. Now, my observation is that the church, by and large, has believed that our witness, uh, our witness to this world is a witness of position, to figure out with certainty what 
what the right position is and then go tell the world that this is the position and if you wanna be right, you have to join us here. And this not only on one position, it's on a litany of issues. But I, I wonder if perhaps our greater calling uh, to, to be a witness for Jesus is a witness of posture. Like how do we actually love the person that this world tells us is our enemy? Like how do we actually disagree within the family of God? How does a church stand in a midst of a culture of antagonisms and angst and aggression? Like how do we do that without falling prey to, to uh, just putting on those banners that is so prevalent? How do we actually create space to disagree with each other while also holding a same kind of posture. I believe that that might be how Jesus wants to teach the church how to witness to the one who can clothe us differently, clothe us not in the way of this world, but clothe us with compassion and empathy, with grace and curiosity. Thinking about this, I was reflecting on who Jesus actually called together to be his people his community, his disciples. And I realize, and just thinking about it, Jesus called a very difficult bunch of disciples together. Like Jesus called disciples all over these positional spectrum, all over here. And I believe he did that for two different purposes. One is that Jesus would display that Jesus does not belong to a tribe or a position, but Jesus came for everyone. But two, that if we want to follow Jesus, we're going to have to learn to love the spectrum of people that's a part of the family of God. We're going to have to learn to, to treat with compassion and grace and empathy those that we've been taught to hate. Scripture tells us that Jesus had to go to Samaria to encounter the woman at the well. And it wasn't only her, but it was also, he actually stayed there for several days to, to share his message to the whole community. That's even though that their culture called each other racial enemies and religious others. Jesus chose these disciples, one Simon the Zealot, who tried to violently overthrow the Roman government. He called him, as well as Matthew the tax collector, the one who was taking money from his brothers and sisters of Israel to fund Rome. And Jesus called them not only to him, but called them together. And they brought about the kingdom of God. They did it. You know, I used to think the work of the enemy was to persuade us to believe the wrong thing, to move us along the wrong position along that axis. And that could be true. I really do believe that could be true. But the thing that I had noticed that damages the church and our witness the most is how we treat each other, like the posture we take. I wonder if the enemy's strategy is to not merely move people to different beliefs, but to throw gas on the fire of our contempt to turn up the volume of the disdain that we have for our world and for each other. I wonder if the work of the enemy is to, to try to move us down that vertical line towards dehumanization, judgment, anger, contempt, enemy making. For me, I believe that is what breaks unity the most. That's what breaks unity the most. Not necessarily being in different positions, but it's the awful posture that we can take to one, one another. Because Jesus wants to bring about a different kind of unity. Did you know that Jesus prayed for our church? He prayed for the vine. It's actually in John 17. It's one of, one of his final moments before he went to the cross. He, 
went into this long prayer and in it he was praying for his disciples but then he started praying for the people who would believe the message because of the disciples and this is what he said in john 17 my prayer is not only for them the original 12 disciples alone but i also pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father just as you are in me and i am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me above all else jesus wanted to pray for unity he wanted our the church our church to be marked by one thing unity our pursuit of unity actually is partnering with the longings and the passions that Jesus had. And when we choose to live with division and disdain and animosity, we're actually warring against the prayers that Jesus gave for us. That this is the window into Jesus's soul. This is, we, I've always heard, if you wanna know about the, someone's soul, hear what they pray for. And Jesus wants our church to be one. And notice why, Jesus has a purpose. It's because if we are actually one, the world may believe that you, God, had sent Jesus. So when we are actually, Jesus is, is saying that when we display a different kind of unity, this will be the witness that the world needs to know that Jesus is Lord and Savior for all. It comes down to unity. And I know that that is not easy. Because what is required of a community that finds unity in posture and not just position? Well, it requires patience, curiosity, empathy, the ability to degree, disagree in love, ability to forgive and ask for forgiveness, to fight the temptation to splinter every time something goes the way that you don't want it to go. I think a church that's built upon unity of posture and not position, it actually is more challenging it actually demands more from us. Yet as I reflect on the Gospels, I believe it's the misuse of posture that upsets Jesus the most. Surprisingly, when I read the Gospels, I don't see Jesus getting really frustrated on positional issues. Honestly, Jesus seems to try to avoid debates altogether. When he's posed with either or questions, he'll just you know, find a way to get out of it. But what really frustrates and angers Jesus, as you will see in the Gospels over and over again, is a misguided posture, a posture of self-righteousness and pride, a pompous nature where you're puffing yourself up and caring little about other people. He got really angry when people created barriers between a life of, of them and God, especially the marginalized and the excluded. That's what Jesus stood up against over and over again. It's not that Jesus didn't care about truth. Of course he did. Nor is the call for unity that we're talking about this morning a calling for us to water down our convictions or be flippant about sin. But if someone has wisdom and they do not have love, if someone is correct in all the positions, but they do not have mercy and love, the Bible says that they're like a clanging symbol, so annoying for everyone but the person with the symbol. And sadly, they're not a part of a greater song. That's not what Jesus is for. And I wonder if Jesus would challenge us today, not merely on the positions where we might be off, but more importantly, I wonder if he would challenge us on the posture that we have with those whom we disagree. I, for one, I want to be a part of a church with a different kind of unity.
I'm talking about this today because I believe the way of Jesus wants to point us to a different posture in this cultural moment, in our country that's it's just so amped up. But we also as a church, I hope that we embody this in many conversations for which we might have disagreements in. So I hope that this is applicable and is a part of our, our church's culture by and large. Um, but in particular for today, I want to talk about how we're using this to frame our church's posture towards the LGBTQ community and inclusion. You know, it seems like for every generation, there is a uh, an issue that demands the response of the church. And for our day and age, it's around this. And over the last four years, we've had countless people over and over again ask the leadership of our church, so where does the vine stand with inclusion or affirmation? Perhaps many of you have, when you invited your friends, you've been asked, what is the position of the church? And to be honest, we haven't had a clear answer. Over the last 12 months, though, the Vines leadership team, whom you elected and I'm a part of, we have been praying, we have been studying, discussing, discerning this issue, and with great intentionality. Many, many hours have been spent processing this together. And in my opinion, I actually think that our, our leadership team is representative of our church. You could have easily plotted our leadership team on that horizontal line from very affirming to very traditional. And to be honest, at the end of this 12-month journey, I'm not sure if many of us shifted much on, on this line. I mean, I don't know, after all of that reading and studying and interviewing people and discerning, I don't know if many of us dr- drastically moved here, but there's been a transformative process. And that's been on the vertical line we have experienced a different kind of unity. Unity of compassion, empathy, humility, and love. We have seen the complexities of this issue and the humanity that it entails. And we believe at the end of this journey that we are, we actually believe our leadership can actually discern that we have a calling, a clear calling for our church. And that calling is to a posture and it's not to a position. So the vine, uh, we're gonna be a church where we're gonna create space for us to differ differ in our positions while we hold on to the essentials of our faith. Some people call this a third way, um, and it's a third way because we acknowledge that there's Jesus-loving, Bible-believing people on both sides of this issue. It's not that one group has flushed all truth down the drain and the other group is, is judgmental. No, it's actually a pursuit of Jesus where people arrive on these positions. And so rather than splintering off into smaller tribes of sameness, we're going to create space for us to be unified around the same posture as we walk with each other, as we include each other. And that includes members of the LGBTQ community in the, in the life of our church. We want to be a place where anyone and everyone can encounter the love of God and extend that kind of Christ-like posture at all. So your leadership team has been hard at work at, at, at having a document that d- details this and a little bit more clearly what we've discerned, that emphasis of posture over position and a place where we can create space to disagree while we invite individuals from the LGBTQ community to fully participate in the life of our church. So there's so much more to explore. Please read that three-page document. It's super short, but it details our discerned posture in a way I think will be helpful. The unity that we seek 
is a unity to, to stay connected even though we might have differing points of view. It's to do so with grace and humility and compassion. And I want to be clear about this again. This posture does not mean we water down our convictions or accommodate with culture. It's a calling to hold your convictions with grace and empathy as you come to the table with the body of Christ. I actually believe something surprising might take place by us living this out. If we choose to, to live and stay connected in our diversity, we actually might be prepared to do that in the world. If we can figure out how to love and disagree, care and listen, empathize and, and, and dignify each other in our differences within the church, I wonder if God is preparing us to actually bear witness to who Jesus is for all. This maybe is why Jesus, above all else, Pray that we would be one. Yes, Jesus had positions. He was the way, the truth, and the life. And I'm sure folks back in his day should, could have plotted him along that horizontal line. But one thing remained consistent. His posture was always of love and mercy and compassion. He met people all over the spectrum with a definitive and consistent posture. That is the calling that we're going to pick up. That's a calling that we are going to extend to you, our church. So beloved vine, let us clothe ourselves with such a posture as we pursue a different kind of unity.